That hymn always makes me kind of start to want to cry. It's not really fair when I'm supposed to get choked up once I start speaking, not before. Um, it has been quite a while since I've been up here. Um, I think uh, the last time I was up here was February of 2012. Um, and if I remember correctly, I was, I was rather nervous, and, and I had my hands on the pulpit while I was speaking, and I saw the mic shaking, bouncing up and down, and so I, so I quickly, quickly took my hands off. But um, So hopefully I'm a little more comfortable this time. Um, I have gotten more advice over the last year and a half than, than I know what to do with on public speaking, um, so hopefully I can kind of sort through all that and, and pay attention to, to what my notes say. Um, but... Uh, I know that in college when I gave presentations, it was a lot easier to be comfortable. And, and I was mentioning this to Melanie, and she was pointing out that this is a lot more important, what I'm, what I'm saying, than what in college. You know, the, the product life cycle in my business class, you know, didn't really hold as much weight as the Word of God does. Um, so it makes a little more sense that I'm a little more nervous to, to present on this. Um, but over the last year and a half, there have been a lot of big things from the Bible that have stood out to me. And so I'm kind of using this chance to pick and choose some of the more important ones and kind of jumble them all together. One of the big, big ones, and it just makes an appearance from one verse, is, is Proverbs 3, which was, um, which we used in brigades as one of the chapters they have to memorize for the camporal. And so that was a big one. One was uh, part of Ecclesiastes, which up at summer camp over the summer, uh, one of the brothers from, uh, from Silica Bible Chapel, Duncan, he had a camper who, who had approached him saying that, that he wanted to learn more than, than he was getting just out of the couple messages a day. And so Duncan says, yeah, go ahead. He's like, choose whatever book you want. We'll go over it. And the, and the little kid, I mean, you know, he's, uh, you know, probably 14, 15 years old. And he's like, let's go through Ecclesiastes. And so Duncan's kind of taken aback. And, and so, so I had started to read through it um, just to be able to help him in case, um, in case, you know, he had any questions or if there was anything else. And so, so that kind of really spoke to me. And I never really got to talk to the kid or to him about it. Um, but there was a lot that stood out there, and, I, and I've still been kind of holding on to some of those verses. Um, just over the last few weeks, Job's been very prevalent on my mind. And then just this morning, when Rick was speaking in First Peter, Melanie read a little bit ahead a couple chapters and pointed out a verse in First Peter, which was very applicable to what I'm speaking on, and so I decided to throw that in too a little bit. Um, and so we're going to be having quite a bit of traffic in our Bibles, and mine's already um, kind of falling apart, and I think the whole book of James is, is, is loose from my pages. Um, so, so Melanie knows I need a new Bible for Christmas, um, but, um, but when I was looking through all these and putting this together, just how, how all the verses kind of transitioned and, and, and flowed into each other, um, it's going to be a lot more of the Lord's words than mine because, because I can't really transition through these any better than they already do themselves. Um, so I guess with that, we can go ahead and kind of get started. We're going to start in Job, uh, just the first chapter of Job. Uh, very familiar story, very familiar passage. Um, and if you don't remember the, the song as a, uh, as a kid in Sunday school, uh, Nehemiah, Esther, Job is the progression if you're looking for it. And just starting in verse 1, we'll just read through the first chapter just for context. Um, Starting in verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 she-asses 
in a very great household so that his, uh, this man was the greatest of all men of the east. And his sons went and feasted in their houses every one his day and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and uh, to drink with them. And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that uh, Job sent and sanctified them and arose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And that's one of the verses, as we continually you'll have to keep in mind when we go to other, other passages. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power, only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord, and there was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their their eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing, and the asses feeding beside them. And the uh, Sabians fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God is fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away. Yea, and the slain servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone. Or, and I, yeah, I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And he beheld there came, and behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they are dead. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And uh, in verse 10, just a couple out of this chapter, which will kind of branch out into what else we're going to look at, is verse 10, when it, when it mentions... Um, uh, the devil says, Hast thou not made a hedge about him, and about his house, and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. And it's a, it's a, a, a notable point that it, you know, on how easy it is to praise the Lord and to not, um, you know, to not curse him uh, and to trust him when, when life's easy. Like Rick talked about this morning, um, some of the, the trials that we go through and how some people haven't experienced anything that major and how uh, it might take the judgment seat, uh, to really bring things into perspective. Um, but it definitely is easier to, to trust him when things are easy. And in verse 21, we're reminded when it says that the Lord gave and the Lord had taken away, that everything belongs to him. So the, the first passage that we'll turn to after that is First Peter. And this is what Melanie had pointed out to me this morning. 
And that's in verse 7 what I wanted you to keep mind of. And I'm sure several of you already know what the verse that it is before, before we even get there. Probably should have bookmarked this. First Peter 5, um, starting in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. And like it said in verse 7, the devil even admitted himself that he was going to and from across the earth. And he was just looking for someone he thought he could pick on. Um, but the Lord reminds us that, that we will be exalted in due time despite um, when we humble ourselves and despite uh, what, what the devil has for us. Um, and this reminded me very much of, oh, sorry, I left one verse out. Whom resist steadfast, in verse 9, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same affliction are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. And this reminded me of, of the verse, um, that there is no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. And, uh, and that verse was brought out to me at our junior leadership conference for Boys Brigade two years ago. Someone had spoke on that, and what he emphasized more that I hadn't really looked at was this, the statement, um, common to man. And a lot of times we think, you know, when we're, when we're innocent or when we're not living right, we think that we're kind of the only one. We look around at all the faces in the chapel and we think everyone's living so much more righteous than we are. But the temptations that we're, that we're dealing with are common to, to, you know, all if not everyone, sorry, all if not most of, of the people around us. Um, and we're just encouraged by that statement, but God is faithful, and he will not suffer you to be tempted above what you are able. So even though it seems like we have no strength on our own, which is completely true, but he gives us the strength to overcome that temptation. And now back into Job, more towards the end of the, end of, well, at the end of the book, um, Job 41. And verse 11, and it reiterates that verse 21 from, from Job 1. The Lord is talking to Job, to Job and um, he's just reiterating his omnipotence over and over again through the last, chapter, last couple of chapters before. But in verse uh, 11 of, of chapter 41, it says, Who hath prevented me that I should repay him? You know, he's telling us that, that God owes none of us anything. Uh, it says, whatsoever under the whole heaven is mine. And it goes back to that verse, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. And in Ecclesiastes 5, this is when we make our debut into Ecclesiastes, and, and I was just blown away when I first read it of just all the, it seems like common sense, you know, like the Proverbs and all these, these great points. And, and the overlying theme of Ecclesiastes is vanity. But in this, in this instance, in chapter 5 and verse 2, it says, Be not rash with your mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and thou upon earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. And I was, I was very tempted to, to use that as my, my, closing, my closing verse before, before I ended, but um, there was so much more that came to mind. And it says in the second part of verse 3, A fool's voice is known by multitude of words. That, that kind of hit hard because some of you might not know, but others know that I have a tendency to, to talk and to talk and to talk. Um, 
But, so that was kind of a, a hit close to home, especially when, like I said, in, in college, when it's so much easier to give presentations, and I would never take notes up, because I knew what I was talking about, and, or at least I convinced people that I did, and, and I would just go and just expound and, and seem so, so wise, but it's so clear that, that the multitude of words, I was, I was a fool. Um, and, and in Ecclesiastes 7, just a couple pages over, verse 13, Consider the work of God, for who can make that straight which he hath made crooked? And that, that made me think of, of Proverbs 3, and we won't turn there, but just two verses, uh, verses 5 and 6. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understandings. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Now, there's a version of the Bible that, that phrases that last line, and he will make your path straight, and I'm not a very big fan of that, uh, because God doesn't promise us a straight path or an easy path, and it says here, who can straighten that which the Lord has made crooked? He's going to direct you one way or the other. He doesn't, he doesn't, it's not like those, those commercials for the, for the, the car dealerships, you know, they, they step past that start line, and this green arrow just, you know, points them in a straight line to the, um, to, to where to get the best deal, you know, but he, he takes us in twists and turns and through trials and up and over hills and, and underwater and, in all kinds of directions, and so I think it's misleading when it says that he'll make your path straight. It kind of gives the impression that, that the Christian life is an easy life, and he just guides us through it, just holding our hand, just like, um, just like you know, walking a child through a park. Um, and then in Ecclesiastes 3, just a chunk out of there, verses 1 through 8, when we tend to question what, what the reason is for everything or why something happens, um, God lets us know that, that he's, he's got a lot more control than we do. He says, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to get and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to rend and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. And that led me immediately, my thoughts towards Jeremiah 29.11. I'm sure most of you can quote this. Um, but I can't, so I will read it. And the, and the few verses after. It says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. Ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. And I will be found of you, saith the Lord, and I will turn away your captivity. And I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places whether I have driv- driven you, saith the Lord. And I will bring you again into the place whence I caused you to be carried away captive. And, and I, originally I wasn't going to use that whole passage, but that last verse, again, took me right back into the last chapter of Job. Um, it, it just blew me away how, how easily the Lord fit this all together. Um, and it's not in the first five verses of the, la- of the last chapter, which I still wanted to mention because it's Job answering the Lord and, and realizing now what the Lord has shown him. It says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, 
I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not. Things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. And then what, what reminded me of this in, in Jeremiah, when it mentioned that he will, take, he will turn them away from the captivity, that's what the Lord calls in, in verse 10 of chapter 42. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And it's, it's just incredible. And I've, I've noticed it in this, this last year, there have been things that God has made himself so evident, his power so, so incredible in, in what seems like a situation that no good can come from, and he turns it and twists it and just shows you, like, I was, you know, I, he takes this, this lump of coal of the situation and, and turns it into a diamond. And just to finish the chapter, then came there unto him all his brethren and all his sisters, in verse 11, and all they that had been of his acquaintance before, and did eat bread with him in his house. And they bemoaned him and comforted him over all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Every man also gave him a piece of money, and every one an earring of gold. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and a 1,000 yoke of oxen and a 1,000 she-asses. He had also seven sons and three daughters, and he called the name of the first Jemima, I'll skip that verse, it's just names. And in all the land where no women were no women found so fair as the daughters of Job, and their father gave them inheritance among their brethren. After this lived Job 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, even four generations. So Job died being old and full of days. I think it's just just incredible what, what the Lord can do through such a situation as that. And and I, I don't have a lot of words to say about about these verses, like I said, because they, they fit so well together, they, they just transition so well into each other, and I know that the Lord's word is so much more powerful than mine is. But back in the first Peter, um, you don't have to turn there, it's just two verses that I can read for you, just to, just to end it. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, Strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And I can't add any more to that. This goes in my pocket, right? <laughs> All right, that was, uh, that was very interesting. While I was not really listening very much to what you were saying, <laughs> no, I was. Uh, I enjoyed uh, your reading of the first chapter of Job, and I'd just like to look at that for a second before I completely change the subject. Um, Job's an interesting character, isn't he? They say he's a uh, I, I'm not at all prepared to speak on Job, but I, I do remember some things I've heard from wiser men than myself. It is said that he was a contemporary of Abraham, or perhaps even before Abraham, and that he lived, of course, before uh, the time when the Lord called a chosen people. Job was one of those that lived in the, in the, the age of, uh, 
what was it, human government uh, before the law. And each and every man was a priest before the Most High God if they chose to be. Of course, many chose to be priests to idols, false gods. But Job was probably similar to Melchizedek in that he was a priest to the Most High God. And we see in this first chapter, and I thought it was a beautiful picture, that it begins in in, uh, verse 4, at the end of verse 4, it says, So that this man was the greatest of all the men of the East. And it's very interesting to see that this wealthy, very blessed man, rather than uh, turn to his own vanity and his own pride, became an example of a man of God, a man of faith, a man who knew God perhaps better than any other man on earth. And yet, in his extremity, later in the book, though he did not curse God and die as his wife instructed him to, he rued the day that he was born, didn't he? But it says here that this man, the greatest of all the men of the East, looked on his sons who shared in his great and vast wealth. And his sons looked at life a little differently, didn't they? And how they feasted in each other's homes day by day and invited their sisters to join them. But Job called them and he sanctified them. Here was a man that knew the error of falling under the spell of your own self-importance and uh, enjoying your wealth and not realizing that it's the very hand of God that provides it. It says, and he called them and he sanctified them. And it goes on in verse 5 to say, and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them. Not just one burnt offering, but a burnt offering for each of his children. According to the number of them. To cover any sin they may have done or that they may have cursed the name of God. And here was a father who not only knew his Lord as a Savior. This is the same man that writes later in the book. It is recorded later in the the book as saying, I know that my Redeemer liveth. And the worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I will see God. He knew that he had a Redeemer. And he knew that these sacrifices that he was performing were a picture of the one that was to come. That Lamb of God that Abraham would, would later proclaim. I know whom I have believed. I know that my Redeemer liveth. And so he offered the sacrifices for his sins, for the sins of his sons. It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their heart. And then uh, the, the story of Job goes on to recite his abiding faith in the wisdom, the ultimate wisdom of God. And how God's hand would be on him through thick or thin, through trial or judgment, while his friends told him, you must have sin in your life, you must have done something to offend God. And his faith was abiding, that he had a redeemer. And this was just a short trial. When I read that book, I thought of, uh, I, I don't know the verse off the top of my head, and how that a godly wife can be for the sanctifying of the family. That a family can be sanctified for the sake of a godly wife. And some of you young men know that 
uh, you're lacking in, in areas. Some of us middle-aged men, oh, I hate that word, middle-aged. <laughs> I still feel young. I'm not, uh, I'm not yet to that senior citizen age. That hits tomorrow. AARP age hits tomorrow. So don't sing. Don't bother singing. Um, that there, the weaknesses in our own lives, our susceptibility to sin, our susceptibility to temptation, uh, we are but one decision of w- away from falling into grave sin. Ladies as well, but men, young men especially, we're one bad decision from falling into grave sin. And you can thank a godly mother or a godly wife and their prayers that are sanctifying you or your family. Can I get an amen? Do you have a godly mother? Did you have a godly mother? Did you have a godly wife? One that cares enough to pray for you and lift you up before the Lord in prayer. And this was an example that Job gave, that he, out of that desire to sanctify his family, rose up early in the morning and offered sacrifice according to their number. A father who sanctified that household. And so we know that within days after that, his children were taken from him. Yet he knew that his Redeemer lived. And he knew that his sons and daughters, had they put their faith in that Redeemer, that they were in the arms of their Lord. And so he had a measure of peace in that. Now, on to another subject. A few weeks ago uh, in the morning, I spoke on on, uh, thoughts I had on the Lord Jesus and his position as the sin-bearer, his role as the sin-bearer. And the key verse on that was uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, which is, For he hath made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now I'm going to ask another McKay. Scott, will you, will you tell us what Romans 3.20, don't look, Romans 3.23 says. Oh, well, I didn't say 6.23, I said uh, 3.23. That's what you meant, yes, exactly. Those ones are always uh, easy to get mixed up. I always remember it this way, that uh, the second one uh, goes into more depth. So I can remember the first one, all have sinned and come short of God. And then the second one is the way, oh, I'm sorry, Rachel, what is uh, Romans 6.23? Where's Rachel? Okay, that's wrong, but no, that's exactly right. (laughs) They have a good mother, they have a good mother. (laughs) Uh, Foundationally, we look look at sin. These are the verses we memorize in, in Sunday school at Awana. We've all memorized as children, hopefully. The very fundamentals, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
Then we go on to read that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. As a review, uh, a few weeks ago I spoke on uh, the Lord Jesus bearing, his own, his, bearing our sins in his own body on the tree, 2 Peter 2. And I took us back to, we looked in the book of Exodus and we looked at the sacrifices. And we looked at how the sacrifices that were brought before the priest, that the, the, the person that would bring the sacrifice before turning it over to the priest would put his hand on the head of the sacrifice, thereby symbolically transferring their transgressions, their sins, to that sacrifice. And I have weird thoughts, you know, I have thoughts that ramble. And there is something, there's a difference between the death of a sacrifice and the death of an animal. If you're a hunter, you can go out in the woods and you can kill an animal and shed its blood. And there is no covering of sin, is there? There's no redemption. There is no remission of sin through the blood of an animal. If you, uh, if it, even in the Old Testament, if you butchered an animal for meat, there was no remission of sin. There was no, there was no uh, vicarious carrying of sin through that, is there? So it's not the simplicity of blood shedding that there's any magic in, is there? It is the, unless the, the giver of the sacrifice were to lay their hand on there and vicariously and in spirit desire to have their sins transferred to that animal, there was no efficacy, was there? Nothing, was, nothing, nothing good was gonna happen other than an animal die. And so we look at that, the symbolism of the transference of sin to a sacrifice. And then, of course, we looked at the Day of Atonement, when Aaron, of course, would offer the sacrifice for himself and for his family before he had uh, to cover his own sins and his family's sins, before he had the, the authority or the, uh, the okay to go within. But it was also the Day of the Scapegoat Sacrifice, and the scapegoat sacrifice was two goats. It wasn't one goat, it, it was two goats, but it wasn't two sacrifices, was it? It was one sacrifice. Two goats equated to one sacrifice. And a lot was chosen on those goats, that one was to die and shed its blood, and the other was to bear the sin and to carry it far away, not just out into the field, but it was led away by a choice man, by a picked man, and it was led out over the hills and across the valleys to a place where it was taken. And a man was sent there, was sent to stay and watch for fear that that goat would bring that sin back in among the people. Because to them it was a very real thing, and it was because God ordained it. There was never any intention that the scapegoat was to go away free and live a happy life out in the wilderness. That goat was to bear the sin away, but the people knew that goat was dead. 
A domestic goat left on its own in the wilderness would probably last hours, if that long. But there was that concern that that goat might reappear. And I mentioned that the story goes that the last scapegoat sacrifice to take place was the Day of Atonement in the year that our Lord Jesus gave up his life. And tradition says that they would take a piece of scarlet and they would tear it in half and they would tie half of that to the goat and send him out. The other half they'd put on the gate of the temple. And tradition has it that for the next 40 or whatever years it was until the destruction of the temple, that that scarlet did not fade. Tradition said that each year as that red scarlet would lose its color through the sunlight and the rain and it would turn white, the people could breathe a sigh of relief knowing that their sin had indeed been carried away. But tradition says that that piece of scarlet for 40 years did not lose its color, signifying that the people had rejected the sacrifice. Other thoughts, uh, I didn't quite finish my message last time. Other thoughts on this exact uh, topic uh, include the beautiful picture of the, the brazen serpent in the wilderness. And of course, we begin by looking at, you don't have to turn, John three fourteen, well known to all of us. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. These are the words of the Lord Jesus. And two verses later, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. What does that have to do with even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up? That he gave his only begotten Son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In chapter 12, the Lord Jesus says, And I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. We looked at the Lord Jesus on the cross. The wounds that he bore. The wounds on his back the wounds on his brow, the wounds in his hands and in his feet. And yet he was without sin. I've thought of these wounds and their significance. I've even studied on them, and I don't know if there's any pattern to them. But when I think of the Lord Jesus, he must needs go to Jerusalem and to suffer and to die. But did he have to have his back laid open like a plowed field? Did he have to have the brow ripped by those thorns? Did he have to hang upon a tree to bear my sins? And I think of that back the back on which the good shepherd would place the lamb 
and it was plowed for me. And I think of that brow that was pierced with those thorns. It's said that those thorns are three to four inches long. And that when that that crown was placed on his head, it rode high until the rod was brought down. And they smote him on the head and drove those thorns down his scalp and into his brow. Was it necessary that his blood be shed that way? But that brow, that brow that, thinks of the, that, that speaks of the mind of God, it speaks of that wisdom, that brow that is praised in the Song of Solomon, that brow was torn for me. Was it necessary that his hands be pierced through? His strong right hand that bears the the sword. That loving left hand that shields us, that holds us. Was it necessary that that be pierced? Those feet. Those feet that trod the road to Calvary. Those feet that were washed with the tears of that woman in the house of Simon. Those feet that walked from Galilee to Jerusalem. Those feet that were at the graveside of Lazarus. Was it necessary that they be pierced? We read, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of Christ. How beautiful are these feet that have been pierced for us. And his side, was it necessary that his side be laid open? With a wound so large that he could say to Thomas, thrust thy hand in my side. Why these wounds? No sacrifice ever laid upon Jewish altar ever was mutilated like this. There was a simple slice of a knife and the poor animal would suffer for just a moment. But our Lord Jesus Christ was mutilated. Praise God that with his stripes we are healed. We read of his sufferings in the 22nd Psalm and in Isaiah 53, Isaiah 50. And we read that question, what are these wounds in thy hands? These are the wounds with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. And so the Lord Jesus bore that upon himself and yet was without sin. But the time came. And he had to cry out those words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because the Lord... The Father himself turned his back on his Son as the sins of the world were poured into the very body of the Lord Jesus Christ. The sins of the world. You and I have seen the effects of sin in this world, haven't we? We've seen people that have spent a lifetime in depravity. 
and how it bears a toll on their bodies. That look, the premature aging, the crippling, the sores, the hideous look of a depraved life. And then you think of the effects of sin, death, sickness, all the pains associated with it. And all that was poured on the Lord Jesus. It was enough that my sin was laid on Him. But your sin and yours and the sins of the world were laid on Him. The sins of the mass murderers, the sins of the Hitlers and the Stalins, the sins of the serial killers, poured into His soul. Oh, can you imagine if you could go into the mind of some of these depraved people, how it would blast your very soul? And yet that was poured into the Lord Jesus. No wonder the Father had to turn his back on him. No wonder the Son had to be darkened, for creation would have quailed at what was being done to their Creator. And there in those dark hours, the Lord Jesus became sin for us. In those three hours, and to the time he closed his eyes in death, he became to God the Father the most hideous thing in all the universe because he bore that sin in his body. And so his blood was shed. But the wages of sin is not mutilation, is it? It's not merely the shedding of blood. The wages of sin is death, and so the Lord Jesus must die. And bearing those sins, he took them to the grave. And when he rose, those sins had been taken away. Because he was both the goat that was sacrificed, and he was the goat that bore the sins away. He was one and the same. And rising, says he led captivity captive. Brothers and sisters, that you and I, dead in our sins, the Lord Jesus took those sins upon himself and took them, died with them, for them, and rose again, justifying us. It says that God hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Why? So that we may be made the righteousness of God in him. 1 Peter 2.24 says, Who his own self bore our own sins in his own body on the tree. Why? That we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. This meditation upon our Savior and what he did touches our hearts, and it does every Sunday morning. What it meant for him, the Holy One, to bear away my sins. We sing that hymn. And we're reminded. I was reading an article by C.H. Spurgeon, and he was so sure that the Lord Jesus would bear those wounds through eternity. 
And he listed many reasons why he believed that. And what would be the purpose of bearing those wounds through eternity? One was that they would be the trophies, his trophies of grace. And he equated it to that of a soldier that bore a wound. A a brave soldier that in battle received a wound. And for the rest of his life, when people would ask, he says, yes. In this battle, I took this wound, but we were triumphant. And the Lord Jesus bears those wounds and can display them before his people. These are the wounds that won the battle. He goes on to say that those wounds are for his angels to wonder at through eternity. How that their great captain could have been treated as such for people such as us. And how the wonder of their creator would last through eternity. And those wounds... When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we'd first begun. Will we ever forget those wounds? Every time we look upon his face, we'll see that brow. Every time he holds out his hand to us, we'll see that hand. Every time we fall at his feet, we'll see those feet. And how our love will never, never diminish, never take for granted what he's done for us through eternal years. But the challenge is that we knowing what he has done, that we should live unto righteousness. By whose stripes ye were healed. What more can he do than he's already done? He has suffered for us. He has borne our sins in his body on the tree. Oh, that we might live, enjoy the righteousness that he has already given to us. That we might be as Job and early in the morning sanctify our families, ourselves and our families to him. Lest we have sinned or cursed God. What a savior we have that he has forgiven all sin by bearing it in his own body on the tree. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank thee for our Savior, the Lord Jesus. There is none like him, Father. We can barely bear our own sin, let alone anyone else's. But, Father, he has borne the sin of the world. Father, he has redeemed his people through his blood. And Father, he has clothed us in his righteousness. Father, we look forward to the day when we stand before thy throne. And if anyone asks, what right do we have to be there? We'll simply say, his wounds, his wounds. Oh, Father, what a Savior you've given to us. We thank you for him. Father, we pray that you would challenge us to walk in this newness of life, to walk in his righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. We thank you in his name. Amen.